0: Today, we're talking about love in between hope faith and love the greatest of these the bible says is love which naturally leads us to the question what is a pastrami sandwich seriously honestly honest to god you're afraid to laugh because you don't know where i'm going alex isn't afraid and i appreciate that about you because if you cannot define what a pastrami sandwich is, how can you define what love is? That's the truth of the matter. And that should be enough. Y'all ready to go home? You understand love better now? No? Good? Okay. Um why why am I saying that? Because uh we we do tend uh, within especially of course we're talking about within Christianity, but even life in general, uh we get so philosophical about love. I mean there are there are poets, there are people that have written sonnets, there's Shakespeare who has a, written plays, and there are books that have been devoted, there are TV series that are devoted, um, there are endless accounts on online that you can read. So many people that wax philosophically about love, what love is and what love isn't, and it can be hard to define. You go to the Bible and you, uh, you look into the New Testament and more often than not, and you find at least three types of love. Uh, you sit down and you're, and you're taught inside of a church what love is, and you're usually taught the difference between an eros love, a phileo love, and an agape love, which are all Greek words that come from the New Testament, one to define a lustful kind of love, one to define a, a brotherly love, and one to define, uh, we're not really sure how to define agape love at the end of the day. Should agape love ever be between people, or is agape love just between people and God, or is it just something that only God himself can do and perfect because it's so unconditional and so perfect. Uh, So it can be hard, a little bit difficult to define. if you just go through and study it in the Greek, I mean, you'll find scriptures that help you define it. But um, there, in my opinion, is always a slight disconnect. There's a huge disconnect between the English and the Greek, an even bigger disconnect between English and Hebrew. But there's also a slight disconnect between Hebrew and Greek. If you don't know what I'm referring to, The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek originally. The problem with the New Testament being written in Greek is that every single author, except for Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, uh, were Hebrew gods. So it's it's a little bit difficult to imagine that they wrote everything that they wrote originally in Greek. Now, you can make the argument that it was originally written in Greek because they wouldn't have probably penned a lot of it themselves, but it would have been, uh, their thoughts would have been written by a scribe, and at the time they were under Roman occupation, and the the language at that period uh, would have been overtly uh, Greek for sure. And I could go with you on that argument, but that still would say that their thoughts toward expressing the New Testament were in Hebrew and maybe written or translated into Greek, even if that was the original way that it was written. I don't have any proof, I don't have any text to tell you that that it was written in Hebrew first and that that's been lost. I don't know that that's true, but I could imagine that happening, being that everybody was a Hebrew that that wrote it. Um, My point being, when we try to define love, I think it's difficult to define it in Greek. It's a little bit more straightforward to define it in English. You've never had to question yourself, you've never had to ask, never had to sit down and have a discussion about what a pastrami sandwich is, all right? You know what a pastrami sandwich is. You sit down to eat your lunch, substitute it for whatever, whatever you're eating. You have an idea, it's defined, it's, it's defined because it's sitting right in front of you, you know everything that's in it. You know what the cheese is, you know what the bread is, you know what the meat is, you know what the condiments are. It's very evident. But when it comes to love, it's so ethereal, it's so philosophical that it's very difficult for us to define because we tend to think of love as a feeling. Remember, the Bible says, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. If the Bible is able to define for us what faith is, the Bible is able to define for us what hope is, and the greatest of these is love. Wouldn't it follow logically that there's a real simple biblical definition handed down from our father in heaven? What he means when he says, my children, I love you. What does it mean when God loves us? And how do we reproduce that love between us as individuals? Because the Bible tells me it's the love that we have one for another that will let people know that we are his disciples. You can hope all you want, and, I, and I, I encourage you to. Your hope is set in something great, but us running around hoping that the Bible is true does not prove to anybody that we are disciples of Christ. Oh, I know a lot of people that hope for heaven, a lot of people that hope there is a God, and even a lot of people that hope in the word of God, but are not disciplined to following Christ. Now you can act and you can have all the faith that you want to have. And that might help define your relationship as a disciple between you and God. But it doesn't help show anybody else. Like faith is not a show that we put on. So the rest of the world can watch what we're able to do in faith. And all of a sudden they are going to know that we are truly people of God. Now don't tell that secret to TBN. I like TBN. I'm just saying don't let Benny Hinn get a hold of this podcast. Don't let some of these guys, God bless them, I'm not saying that they're not doing some things that God's called them to, I don't know, because I wasn't there when they had that conversation with God. I'm just telling you that a lot of times you turn it on Christian television, or you go to a certain ministry, or you go to a conference, or you do whatever, and you if you're not paying attention, it doesn't strike you, but if you take a step back and you look for a minute, you'll realize that These people are trying to define who they are in God by the level of their faith. Like they're hoping that if they breathe real hard and the first two rows fall down, that somebody out there in the audience or somebody at home that didn't know God would go, wow, God is real because he just blew on that guy and that guy fell down. Therefore, I should call and send some of my money in because that's amazing. If I lay hands on somebody, and we've done that here many times, If we lay hands on you and we pray for you and you get healed. We want to hear that testimony, but it doesn't matter. I promise you this as your pastor, it does not matter how big we ever get. You will never see a single service of Edgewater church. You will not see the altar call. You will not see the prayer for healing. You will not see the miracles that God does. None of this will ever be on television. None of it will ever be on YouTube. If we have a television ministry, it'll be with the teaching of the word and that'll be it because the rest of it is not for show. It's not for the world. It's not to make a great television show. It's not for broadcast. In fact, Paul makes a point in the book of first Corinthians that some of these spiritual gifts, if they get broadcast to the world, it's just going to make the world think you're crazy. They're not going to understand it. Why would a non-believer be attracted to you speaking in tongues? It doesn't make any sense to them. Why would a non-believer be attracted to somebody that lays hands on 40 people of service, blows on them, they fall down and get miraculously healed, and then 2020 goes back and tries to find those people and does some type of documentary and figures out that none of them actually got healed. Well, now here's the thing. I don't know if they got healed or not. They might have. 2020 might have found the wrong people. Some of them might have gotten healed. I've seen, I knew a lady personally that got healed of lung cancer and and went back and started smoking again and got lung cancer again. So that might have happened to a lot. I don't know. But now there's a contention because our proof of discipleship is based on acts of faith and those acts can't be proven to everybody else. Does that make sense? That's why he says, the love that you have one for another, that will show the world that you are my disciples. We're we'll gonna go to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Everybody say work. work. So you'll see this theme repeated a lot around faith if you pay attention. Work of faith. Faith without works is dead, right? That's something physical your labor of love and your patience of hope everybody say patience Patience. okay patience is not something you can go out and do is it you can go out and do work right but you can't go out and do patience right you can't go somewhere and clock in and be patient for a little while and then clock out right and write it down and say i've just increased my hope because i went to be patient for a little while what are you going to do today, bro? I'm a little bit bored. What are you going to do? I'm just going to be patient. You want to come be patient with me? <laughs> not particularly. So that, that is not, that's a little bit more difficult to define. You can't go out there and do it, but you know when you're doing it, right? My point in that is that is connected to hope. Because remember, hope is not based on works. Hope is just out there. It's based on something you cannot see, taste, feel, touch, or smell. You just hope. It's not faith. It's hope. And it's built up by patience. Faith, it says right here, is a work. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your patience of hope. So now we need to figure out which one is love. Let's read it again. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Everybody say work. Work. And your labor of love. Everybody say labor. labor. And patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So connected to love is labor. Is labor something you can do? Labor is an action. Labor is an action word. So apparently, when it comes to a biblical type of love, it is not based in something that cannot be measured, but it's it's based in something that can be measured. For some of you uh, more scientifically minded people, let me try it like this. Can light be measured? Yes. It has a speed, right? Speed of light. And it's even its energy is measurable. All things about light are measurable. Does the Bible say that God is light? Yes, it does. Does the Bible also say that God is love? Yes, it does. So God, therefore, reconciles and relates himself to something that is measurable. Light equals love in that equation, does it not? If God is light and God is love, then light equals love. It's a simple equation, yes. So love can be measured. My point in telling you that, and when we get to the end of the sermon, what I'm hoping for is to help answer a question, a very simple question. As Christians, new Christians, old Christians, and sometimes as seekers who may be non-believers or haven't asked Christ into their heart, I know we've all got this question. How do you know that God is real? And... When people want to have a debate about how a person gets to heaven. Is it based on how good they are? Do good people go to heaven? Do bad people go to hell? You know, I hope we've moved past that at Edgewater just to answer that question that the Bible's never taught that good people don't go to heaven and bad people don't go to hell. The reason for that is nobody is good enough to go to heaven. So if it was based on that, we'd all end up in hell. None of our work could get us there. That's why Christ had to come and die on the cross. He didn't die on the cross because we maybe could have made it to heaven. He died on the cross because there's no way that we could have. So it's not about being good or being bad. It's about accepting Jesus Christ. So then we tell people it's not based on religion. Or in other words, it's not based on our goodness, our works, our righteousness. It's not based on any of that. It's based on relationship. Amen. Amen. So he tell me, that you have a relationship with God, but then we leave it at that. And we feel sometimes we feel good about ourselves. No, brother, it's not based on religion. It's based on relationship. Oh, okay. You know, that person went home later and was like, what does that mean? At some point you've got to define what does that mean? Because God is not showing up in flesh and blood form right now. You're not going to see him face to face. The Bible says no man any time has seen God. So how do you define that relationship? How do you have a relationship with God? How do you know that you are in relationship with God? How many of you want to go to heaven? I do. Now, I could just tell you this. That if you've prayed and asked God into your heart, you've asked him to send the Holy Spirit You've said that you you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You believe that He died for your sins and three days later that He rose from the grave and that He's able to forgive you and you accept Him into your life and you do that, that you are saved in a manner of speaking, once saved, always saved. I could just tell you that. Of course, that's only true if you choose not to walk away. And that is absolutely true. If you've prayed for salvation then he is good and he's given it to you. If you've asked him to be in your life, he's in your life and he'll never leave you, nor will he forsake you. But from time to time, we need a little reassurance. We need a little bit more. We need something to stand on and know that we know that we know that we are in relationship with God. Right? This relationship is based on love. Love is a labor. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8. It says but let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. I wanted to bring that to you because it's another scripture that contains faith, hope, and love. And what does it relate? What does it team up? What two things come together? Faith and love, right? Faith is a work. Love is a labor. Faith has evidence and substance. Therefore, love has evidence and substance. God is light. God is love. These two things are related. I don't know what you've ever thought about love before, the love of God before in your life, but I want to encourage you and help you this morning. The love of God can be defined and your love for people can be defined. It is not simply an undefinable, um, ethereal type of feeling or emotion. It's something more than that. And in the Hebrew, not the Greek, it is defined that way. So I want to I propose this to you. If you've, if you've ever sat down and had to have a discussion or a thought with yourself, what is love? And I hope you've asked yourself that question. Normally people would ask that question because something is lacking. Either the love that you're receiving or the love that you're giving is lacking. Somebody's telling you, Somebody that you love that they don't feel loved. Or maybe you, yourself, don't feel loved. And so you get confused. Now, it's, it's really equivalent, once you understand love a little bit more, to being hungry and sitting down at a table and going, what is a pastrami sandwich anyway? I'm so hungry. I don't understand it. Why isn't it just here in front of me? Where's my, pastrami? what is a pastrami sandwich? Why am I hungry right now? Doesn't make any sense. Because you know what it is, you just don't have it. That's the same, that's the same way that you kind of look when you're asking, what is love? You actually can define it, but because you're not feeling it, you're asking yourself a question that is almost irrelevant to the issue itself. Love, according to the Hebrew, ahav or ahava, It's translated in a few different ways, but it's the it's the most foundational Hebrew word for love. You'll find really just one other Hebrew word for love in the Old Testament. And it is it is when you read about it, you'll see that it's really just kind of like kindness between people. But when defining the love of God to a person or the love of people to God, it's this word Ahav or Ahava. And it's based in a word that means to give. God created you. In his likeness and his image. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, stick with this thought for a little bit. So we're going we're gonna to take it to a couple different places. God created you in his likeness and in his image. Everybody say, God, God is, is love. love. He created you in his likeness and in his image. If he is love, then he has created you with the capacity to be love as well. Have you ever felt like you've been scratching on that surface? Have you ever been at a point in your life where you feel like, I don't know how to explain it, I feel really, really good right now? Have you ever been to a place where you like kind of felt like a different person? Like if you just made this one more decision, if you just decided to go with this feeling every day of your life, you'd no longer be who you are right now. You'd be somebody else, and that's scary, and so you don't do it. And then maybe you've gotten back there two or three times in your life and it's a vulnerable place and you don't know if people are gonna start taking advantage of you and you don't know if people are gonna laugh at you, you don't know if people are gonna receive that you're a different person all of a sudden, how can that happen in 24 hours or 12 hours or two minutes or however long it takes when that feeling comes over you and all of a sudden you just know that you know that You could right now start being nicer to people. You could right now start loving people more. You could right now smile all the time. You could cry all the time. You could laugh all the time. And you could forget about what everybody else in the world thinks about you. And you forget about all of your old reputation and everything that you were. And just be this person that you're right on the edge of being, but you never do it because it's a little bit too scary. Have you ever felt that way? That is an intersection of two worlds a spiritual world and a physical world. It's being on the cusp of what God made you to be. God is love and he created you in his likeness and in his image. What did that do for God? God decided to wrap himself in flesh and the light of the world, everybody say love. Love. God is light, God is love. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So let's just go ahead and call him the love of the world. Can we, can we make that? Can we go there? So the love of the world wraps itself in flesh so that he can dwell among us. He steps down into this world that he created. He bypasses that intersection of spirit and flesh. He steps right down into it and immediately they don't receive him. He steps down as light into the darkness And the darkness comprehends him not. He walks around this earth for 33 years in love with every single person. Because he is love. He'll wash your feet. He'll heal your sick baby. He'll give you your eyesight back. He'll let you hear better. He'll feed you when you're hungry. He'll forgive you when you hit him. He'll turn around and love you no matter what. He'll pray for you till the day that you die. He'll believe there's always a way. He'll give you the benefit of the doubt. He'll give you the shirt off his back. He'll give you the flip-flops off his feet. He'll give you anything that you need. He'll cry with you. He'll laugh with you. He'll rejoice with you. He'll fight with you. He'll suffer with you. He'll do anything that you need because he is desperately, endlessly, undeniably in love with you. How did that end for him? Not so good. Right? So it can be a little bit scary for me and you, for you and I. To be made in his likeness and his image. When you're right there on the cusp of becoming that person, when you're right there on that edge and you take a step back, it's because there's something in you that whether you've ever been able to define it or not, that knows If you step over that ledge, it's going to be amazing and it isn't going to end well. But it ultimately ends well. Because now he sits at the right hand of the father. Now he's Lord of all. He has all power in heaven and earth. He gets to hug every single person that's accepted him and makes it into this realm that we call heaven. He gets to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He gets to know you and you get to know him as well as he knows you. He gets to have this relationship. He becomes the light of all things so that there's not even a light that's necessary in the end of days. He is the temple, he is the tabernacle, he is the door, he is the bread of life, he is the water of life. He is the light of the world, He is Amen. the love of God, He is the word wrapped in flesh. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the lamb that was slain. He's the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. He's all in all the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, who was and is and is to come. He's all things. Amen. So that's cool, but he had to go through something. So we get right on that cusp. And we start to realize, whether we've been able to define it or not, that love is a labor and that love is a work. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 tells us. So when God made you in his likeness and his image, how many senses did he give you? Gave you five, right? And we could go on for a long time about the number five, but we're not going to do that this morning. If you remember it, you remember it. It's a number of spiritual unity. And of course, all of these senses kind of work in a spiritual way. can't define what any of them really are. We've talked about that before as well. Even when you feel like you're touching something, the electrons on the outside of the atoms in your fingers are repelling the electrons and the outside of the atoms of that thing that you're touching. So really, it's a repelling that's going on. Nothing ever actually touches, but you have that sensation, blah, blah, blah. Okay, same with the way that you see, the way that you smell, the way that you taste. It's all, all at the scientific level. It doesn't work the way that you think it does. And it's actually less physical and more spiritual, invisible type of things that happen. So if you're made in his likeness and his image, and the Bible says that your body is the temple of God, and Jesus Christ is obviously the image of God, and the Bible says that he is the tabernacle of men, I'm sorry, the tabernacle of God that dwells among men, then we know that a tabernacle and or a temple is related to our body, and when we look at the temple, which is the configuration of the finality of who we are, the temple of God, it's interesting to note that there are five entrances into that temple. North, east, south, and west, and then there are two entrances actually on the south. So there are five entrances into the temple. There are five senses which are entrances into your body. You know, the Bible says in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing, hearing, which is one of the five senses. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? It talks a lot. laying on of hands to transfer spirits. The Bible talks about that. They receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. Everybody say, touch. touch. Touch, taste, hear. Obviously, the things that we see, we set our eyes upon him, the Bible says eyes on the prize. I mean, all of your senses come into play and this is how you receive information. This is how things enter into your temple. That's why you should be careful what you watch. What do you watch on television? You should be careful, and this one's definitely for me as well, you should be careful about how big that stack of DVDs is or that number of movies compared to the number of scriptures because the movies might be telling you one thing and the scriptures are telling you another thing. And if at the end of the day, the movies have more of your time and attention than the scriptures do, then inside of those five senses, those five interests into your body, you might actually be getting more information from a worldly perspective than you are from a biblical perspective. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you study. I know that there are a lot of great Christian authors out there, but none of them wrote the Bible. And if you are paying more attention to what they wrote than you are what God wrote, then you might be getting information from another source other than God, and instead of a supplement, it has become the primary. And now into your temple, you have gotten information that is not the primary information of God. So of your five senses, you devoted a few to something else, and now your temple is a melting pot of ideas. Why does that matter when it comes to this sermon? Because we're trying to define and measure what love is. We have faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Amen? Amen? Amen. You receive love from a Hebraic perspective. You receive love as a feeling. Is there some type of enigmatic triggering system inside of your DNA that when somebody decides they're going to love you, it, it, it somehow catches that and it triggers an emotion inside of your body and says, hey, I feel love right now. No, that doesn't exist. So how do you receive it? There's only five ways possible. It's either going to be by what people say or what people do. It's going to be about that hug that comes through touch It's going to be about whatever, however things enter in to those five senses. Those are the portals. Those are the doorways, and that's the only way that you ultimately receive emotion. I cannot just have a staring contest with you and decide all of a sudden, for no reason, that you love me or I love you. Somebody's going to have to do something to show that. That love is going to have to be expressed. Now, that makes sense, and we can receive that love as a feeling, but that also follows that when we give love, it has to be done as an action. You cannot give a feeling through feeling. It has to be given through action. Love is an action word. Everybody say, work, work of, faith, of faith, labor of love love. let's go to the scripture real quick i know it's in proverbs but i don't think i wrote it down yeah 2719 and uh ted try uh esv okay as in uh this is king james as in water, face answers the face, so the heart of man to man. Basically, all that changes in ESV and IV is it says, um, as in water, uh, a face reflects an image or a face reflects a face. All it's talking about is looking into a pond and seeing your own reflection. As in water, face answers the face, so the heart of man to man, so that love is reflected. Basically, that's a scripture to help us understand that love is something that's visible, and love is something that's reflected in somebody's actions. It's not something that you cannot see and it is not something that you cannot measure. I want to kind of change gears for a second. The title of this message is actually The Guardian at the Gate and there's a reason for that and I want to try to tie these two things together. Initially, God's action to show mankind his love was to build him a paradise called the Garden of Eden. Yes? In other words, God spent five days creating out of nothing, he created the sun. The moon. And the stars. He created the trees. He created the grass. He created the great lakes. He created the high mountains. He created the deep valleys. He created the beautiful flowers. He created the lilies. He created the animals. He created all of these beautiful things. He created summer, winter, fall, spring. He created the seasons. He created the changes. He created the climate. He created the wind. He created the ecosystem He created an amazing, plentiful, good, unified environment, a paradise. Then on the sixth day, he created the man. And from the man, he created the woman. And he took those two and he set them down in a garden inside of a place called Eden. For no reason. No reason. They hadn't done anything. He just made them and he said, I'm choosing right now as I make you to love you forever. And to show you my love, I'm giving you all of this. I'm giving you palm trees and pomegranates. I'm giving you sunrises. I'm giving you sunsets. I'm giving you full moons. I'm giving you bright, shining stars. I'm giving you good food to eat. I'm giving you visually stimulating, orally stimulating, all the types of stimuli you could possibly receive through sight, through taste, through touch, through feel, through hearing, through every which way, it was a paradise. I mean, can you just imagine the perfect hum of the birds, the perfect sense of the climate, the the masterful. You know, the Bible says, oh, "This is going way out of control." <laughs> uh, that we will be given crowns of glory. There's a scripture that talks about that. When you when you study that in the Greek, it's actually called an amaranth crown. It comes from a plant that is uh, has so many. Um, so many vital elements about it. It's unbelievable. But they say when you see a field of amaranth, it's like looking at a physical rainbow on the ground. Like it's just a rainbow myriad of colors that these plants can be all at the same time. Like it's, it's, it's indescribable when they're growing correctly. Just imagine the visually stunning, amazing paradise that God created. And he said, Adam and Eve, I love you guys so much. This is all for you. All for you. You don't have to share it with my angels. It's not going to be dominated by any of my other creations. I want you to have the dominance. I want you to name the animals. Everything will be at your beck and call. I have only, only, only one request. Just don't eat the fruit on that one tree. Just don't eat that fruit. And you can have everything. I mean, that's an incredible love for no reason. That was the first thing he did to show us his love. Or it seems like it's the first thing that he did to show us his love. And of course, we messed that up and we lost that. But he had a plan from the very beginning about how to give that back to us. Amen. This is going to go well beyond... Um, some of your theology especially haven't been around edgewater for a long time Um, but it's something that i want to bring when talking about the love of god and i hope we can all understand it if we go to ezekiel chapter 28 i wasn't sure if i was going to talk about this i didn't didn't write it down um so ted it'll be like we'll start in verse 12 i think ezekiel 28 and 12 says son of man take up a lamentation upon the king of tyrus and say to him thus says the lord you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty right off the bat you got to know that a king uh, can either be a person or it can be a very powerful demonic force which is called principalities uh, princes and principalities and of course would follow that the kings are the the strong man as the bible calls them uh, verse number 13 you have been in eden the garden of god Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, gold, workmanship, and tabernacle that the pious was prayed in the day you created. Verse 14. You are the anointed cherub that covers. So we have that. I want you to see out of those two scriptures, there's a conundrum that maybe you've never considered, but you should consider right now. The only people that are recorded ever being in the Garden of Eden are Adam and Eve, right? So who's this guy? Well, it says here that he's a cherub. So we know that it's not talking about an actual man. When it says King of Tyrus, it's referring to a spiritual force or a demonic force. Cherub is short for cherubim, which is a word for angelic being. So there was some type of angelic being in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. So it naturally follow, well, that must be talking about Lucifer, must be talking about Satan. Yes, it must be. But it says that he was found perfect and perfect in beauty. The scripture said before that he had these covering stones, this breastplate of gold. It's a high priest breastplate, which means that this description of Lucifer in the garden, walking up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, which are not present when Adam and Eve are there. This picture of Satan precedes the time of Adam and Eve by God only knows how long. When he shows up in the story in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, he's in a fallen state describes him as nothing more than a serpent here he is an anointed cherub that covers so what's the difference let's go to genesis chapter one genesis chapter one verse one says that in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth now according to rabbis according to hebrew scholars they say that is a completed work In Hebrew, it is exactly seven words. Genesis chapter one, verse one, signifying by God's numbers that it is perfect and complete, but also the tense that it is written and the way that it is written in Hebrew means that God created the heavens and the earth in that scripture. Not that he's about to, not that he's about to describe it. This is him doing it and describing it all in one sentence and it was done. Verse number two, we read, and the earth was without form. In Hebrew it reads, the earth became without form, which makes a lot more sense. And void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So what we see starting in verse two is that an earth that at one time was complete is now found underwater. Does that sound like something that God does? Has he ever put the earth underwater underwater? in another story that maybe we're more familiar with. He did it in the days of Noah, right? Why did he do it? Because the earth was full of sin, yes? Why did, why did Satan fall? Because of sin, right? And apparently, according to Ezekiel 28, he was in the Garden of Eden, that was his domain. So this is not the first time sin was upon the earth in the Adam and Eve story, but the second time. The first time that sin was found upon the face of the earth was when Lucifer fell from his beautiful anointed form to a fallen form, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 14, because of the five-eye wills and his own arrogance, and he falls, and apparently when he falls, sin is found on the earth, and in order to wash that sin away, everybody say, "Baptize." baptize. God covers the earth in water, which seems to be something that God does, and cleanses it of sin. And so then when he begins... The reformation, as the book of Hebrews, again, chapter 11, tells us, the earth was reformed or reframed, we know, by faith. Then he said, let there be light, and there was light, and then the work of creation for man begins. If that is like way out in left field and you need more explanation on that, we've got a lot more explanation on that, but that's not what today's sermon is about. So that's for, um, hopefully you can kind of see it there, and then those of us that have studied it a lot deeper than that. My point being, if all of that is true, then there's something pretty interesting about the Garden of Eden. And what is interesting there is that it's the only place defined in the Bible as being in particularly flooded twice. There's nothing that we know of about the former world that God recreated in the same manner and then flooded again. Except for Eden. Eden seems to be this spot that he needed both times. What does that mean for you and I? Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. So as I've debated many times in the past, I believe that when God created man, it does not matter at all. It's just something that somebody brought up at a Bible study one time. That he used uh, the same dust in the area of Eden. Still believe that. However, he definitely did not use the dirt from the garden. The garden is in Eden. Remember, it's not the garden of Eden. It's the garden in Eden. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living soul, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, this makes sense to me in my head. I hope I can make it make sense to you. Lord, help me. So what that what that means then is that God, knowing all things beforehand, already knew that that man was going to sin. Already knew that that man was going to mess it up. He already knew that fruit was going to be eaten. We can all agree on that. Yes. Once he did that, he would be underneath the curse of sin. God does something really amazing here in my view. Not only does he want us to have the Garden of Eden, not only does he want Adam to have all the beautiful things, not only does he want Adam to have all of the paradise, not only does he want him to have access to the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he comes up with a plan whereby he is already guaranteeing, he has already decided from day one, That if Adam turns his back, that if Eve turns her back, that if they disobey him, he loves them so much, he is still going to give them every good thing. How do we know that for sure? Because he could have taken them and created them right inside that garden. But the moment they sinned, he would have had to turn around and curse the garden because that's where they came from. But instead of doing that, he gathers them from dust outside of the garden then he puts them inside of the garden. Then when they sin, he kicks them out of the garden and curses the ground that's outside the garden because that's where they came from. So knowing that they were already going to sin and violate him, he said, I'm not even going to give you the ability to violate the things that I want to give you. I'm, I'm going to let you violate yourself I'm going to let you violate my law, but I will not let you violate the blessings that I have for you because I will not let those blessings be stolen from you because you decided to follow after Satan instead of follow after me. In other words, I'm not like your best friend that'll kick you to the curb when you stab him in the back. I'm like somebody you've never met before. I'm going to take the dagger out and polish it and give it back to you. Say, take it to the pawn shop. It's worth a lot of money. I've got a lot of good things for you. I don't want to take them away from you. I'm not going to curse your action in the garden. I'll curse the ground outside the garden because I already have a plan to redeem that too. Amen. So then he goes and he says, I'm taking you outside of the garden. I'm cursing that ground and I'm putting a cherub at the entrance to the tree of life with a flaming sword, because that's what Satan really wants. He really wants to cut you off from the tree of life. And we, we interpret that as God cutting Adam off from the tree of life. And he certainly was for that moment because he said that man, unless he eats from the tree of life and lives forever in his fallen state, so he didn't want them to have access at that moment, but it was less of cutting him off and more of guarding that way because he had already had plans for a way back. Now, where is the garden of Eden? We don't know. Two worlds intersected and God decided I'm going to hide these things in a mystery. I'm going to take these blessings and I'm going to hide them in a mystery. And the Bible says that from that day until this day, that mystery has been hidden. But Paul in his writings writes that mystery is being unveiled in the church. Through the teaching, through the digging in the word of God, Let me try it like this. The Hebrew language has 22 letters in it, but it has five final forms that were added onto it later for grammatical purposes and whatnot. So the full Hebrew language has 27 letters, really 22 letters and five final forms. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because the word mystery appears in the New Testament in the Bible exactly 22 times. And the word mysteries, plural, appears exactly five times. So the mystery and the mysteries of God are unlocked by the mysterious language that he used, the mysterious language that he produced, the language that he first created so that he could create everything else. Because in order to speak things into existence, you first have to have words to say. In order to have words to say, you've got to have letters to form those words. In order to have those letters, you've got to have the language. So the deeper that we dive into the language of God, everybody say the word of God, the deeper we dive into his word, the more of those mysteries that are unlocked. Where is the tree of life? It's inside of God's word. The tree of life is now Jesus Christ. And he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love you and it can be measured. I can be measured by the actions that I took. It can be measured on that cross. In other words, he said, I love you this much. It's measurable. And if you'll come to me and you'll seek me, I will unlock my word for you and you will dive in and you'll find more and more mysteries. You'll unlock more and more mysteries. The Garden of Eden is in God's word. It's enveloped by 22 letters and 22 mysteries, five final forms, five additional mysteries. There are things inside the word of God. Now, whenever you unlock these things, you're not going to see palm trees and pomegranates. It's a spiritual thing it can deliver you to that paradise that one day you can finally step off that cliff and become that person that you're so scared to be. Hope, faith, and love. And the greatest of these is love. God loved you so much that he not only took action, he took premeditated action, predetermined action, predestined action. So what I want you to leave with this morning. If you want to be in relationship with God. First of all, you've got to be able to receive what he already did for you. Because he showed you and he shows you every day. Receive that love of God. What does it mean to be in relationship with him? It means open up that word and be reminded of what he did. Open up that word and be reminded of what he did remember the dvds remember the books sometimes we forget because our entrances are blocked up by other things open up the word of god and be reminded of what he did and then take premeditated action to reverberate that love back to him what does premeditated action look like that means you've already made some decisions let me tell you like this now, this is it takes all that to get to this place because you can't say this in some churches. Honest to God truth, you can't say this to some Christians. Your mom has cancer. You need to take a premeditated action that if she dies, you're going to love God just the same. Amen. I'm not telling you not to pray for her, pray for her. I'm not telling you not to lay hands, call us up and we'll be up there. We'll annoy her with oil, we'll lay hands and we'll believe for healing. But you need to take a premeditated action. Worse comes to worst, hell or high water, if my finger ever points to the sky, it'll be to praise him, not to blame him. Premeditated action. You need to know when you join a church, when you walk through that back door, you get on that leadership team, or you commit to that membership or whatever it is you do, you need to know from the word go. If these people let you down, it doesn't mean anything on God. I've got a premeditated action. If that pastor ends up sleeping with his worship leader, Never, never happened here <laughs> If that premeditated action, premeditated action. Sorry, buddy. Premeditated action. Okay. That's uh that's a blemish for sure for that church, but I'm not going to let it be a blemish for the church and I'm not going to turn around and let it mean that God is less than premeditated action. I'm having problems with so and so. Well, if it ends up that that doesn't work out, my premeditated action is I'm going to love God anyway. If these people don't believe me, if these people don't receive me, if this story doesn't ring true, if I get caught in the ringer, if I'm lied on, if I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm kicked, if I'm kicked while I'm down, if I'm spit on, whatever. I think Jesus, I might, I might be pushing the envelope, but I think Jesus said, If they rip out my beard, if they lash me on the back 39 times, if they nail me to a piece of wood, if they tear off my clothes, if they make fun of me, if they scoff at me, if they tell me to call down the angels because I'm the son of God and they try to make an example out of me and they turn around and they backbite me and gossip me and blaspheme me, if they do all that, I've already predetermined I'm going to love them anyway. I've already premeditated their forgiveness. I've already predestined their grace. That's love. That's love. You need to take that action with God. And the harder part is to begin to try to take that action with people. You can stand to your feet. Remember, God said our worship team can come up. God said. It is the love that we have one for another. It's the love that they have one for another. That defines their discipleship. It's the love they have one for another. I'm going to tell you a secret, as your, as your senior pastor, or the senior pastor at Edgewater Church. I will, if I haven't already, I will let you down. I will make you angry. I will not fulfill some of my promises. I'll not be on time with some things. I'll say something you disagree with. I'll turn around and say the opposite two days later and not even know it. I'll do all these things. I promise you I will, if I haven't already. You've got to make a decision, a predetermination, the same way I try to make about you. I try to predetermine, even though they're going to be late, even though they're not going to show up this Sunday, even though they're not going to be there this Wednesday, even though blah, 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 blah. I'm going to love them anyway because they are sons and daughters of the Most High God. They're my brothers and sisters and it's a love that I have for them that will define to the rest of the world that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's when you love people that they will want what you have. Not when you heal people, so to speak. When you love people. It won't be an act of faith that will win somebody to Christ. It'll be an act of love that will win somebody to Christ. Faith, hope, and love and the greatest of these are, is love. Are you with me this morning? Amen. Didn't even make the point of the title of the sermon, the guardian at the gate. That cherub with the flaming sword that guards the way back to the tree of life, that cherub ends up becoming Jesus Christ as well. Not only is he the tree of life, not only is he the angel of the Lord, not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain and all those things, he is the guardian of that gate. He is the last line of defense. When you think about the defenses that God has against us falling away or the defenses against evil or the intersection of those two worlds as we called it, what is it that keeps the terrorist bomber from coming over here and blowing this place up? There are only three things. The first one is distance slash time. That's your first protection. The Bible says if you'll flee from Satan, he'll flee from you. Put a bunch of distance between you and sin. That's your first line of defense. Sometimes that distance gets compromised. The next line of defense is laws and or borders. There are certain laws that have to be followed when you get down and pray for forgiveness he promised he promises to give it to you he says if you pray and fast you can cast certain things out there are certain laws that good and evil have to work by the last one is the guardians the guards the security guards they keep the crazy people out of the high-rise buildings right they don't get paid very much but they're the last line of defense That's his angels. That's his Holy Spirit. That's him for you. He's the last line of defense. If you will never leave him, the Bible says he will never leave you. My point is, sometimes you might be feeling a little bit low on the love factor. But according to the Bible, it's never gone. You just need to refuel Open that word. Remind yourself what he's already done for you. Go out and do something for somebody else. Let love flourish. Amen.